welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I'm happy to have you listening and subscribing and downloading the podcast. I really appreciate it. And today's podcast is brought to you by Lola. You can get your first two box order for just $9, regularly $18, a savings of 50%. Just head over to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com and click on the Lola icon in the resources tab. Okay, so today is part three of our series on sex. So this all started last year at the combined sections meeting in Anaheim with Doctors Sandy Hilton and Sarah Haig. We were standing in line at a ride at Disneyland talking about various issues related to sex and pelvic pain and pelvic health, which I'm sure the people around us were riveted. Um, and so we said, why don't we do a podcast about it? So we went out for dinner, we grabbed a bottle of wine, and we did a podcast. That was at CSM in uh, Anaheim. We have since done part two, and now we are on part three. And for part two and part three, we added another person to the mix, Dr. Jason Falvey. We thought it would be a good idea to get the male perspective on some of this as well. And so at CSM in San Antonio, we went out to eat, we grabbed some wine and some scotch, and we decided to sit down and record sex part three. And what was so interesting is I was listening back to it, and there are parts where I was like, oh my gosh, I don't remember really saying that, but there it is. Um, it's, it's, it's really, it's a fun, it's funny, it's, the end is, there's a lot of giggling, which is adorable, and I believe that was Sarah, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, and we just, we talked a lot around the topic of sex. So we talked, what is normal? What is normal female anatomy? What, what is everything down there? So that was really great. We talk about graded exposure for women's sexual health. Can interventions for sex be researched? That's where kind of Jason comes in. Uh, we talked about sex education for people with low back pain. And we also talk about what you should and shouldn't be putting into your vagina as per Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop. She talks about a lot of stuff that you can put up there. And we also... Uh, spoke about Fifty Shades of Grey, the book, and two of us read the book. Two of us did not read the book. I think it uh, might surprise people to see who did and didn't read that book. All right, so today I'm joined by Sarah Haig, Sandy Hilton, Jason Falvey. I'm not going to go into their whole bios uh, in this intro because it would just take way too long, but they all give a short and sweet bio in the beginning of the podcast. Um, Like I said, this was a lot of fun. It's part three in our series. Maybe we'll do part four over the summer if we can wrangle everyone together in the same place. And I'm really glad that we started this at CSM in Anaheim. And I remember starting it because we just had questions. You know, I think I had questions, other people had questions, and and Sandy and Sarah are a wealth of knowledge on this subject. They are uh, women's health specialists. And I was definitely in good hands asking them the questions that I had. And then this time rolled around, and we had a few people ask questions, a few listeners ask questions, and and we just kind of one thing rolled into another and rolled into another. And the conversation is funny. It's very open and free. And um, I really hope that you guys get a lot out of it and that you can take this to your patients. And, And one of the things that I think we talk about over and over again in all three of these podcasts is that as therapists, we are healthcare providers. And we have to be comfortable asking our patients questions about sex and questions about how it feels and if they have pain and and 
what we can do to help. And if we can't, if we don't have the right tools to help, then we need to refer them to someone who can. But number one is we have to not be afraid to tackle the subject. And so if all of these podcasts in this, our sex series, does nothing else but get people comfortable with talking to their patients about the subject, then I think that we have definitely done our job here. All right. So before we get to the podcast, I do want to thank Lola for sponsoring today's podcast. So you get two, your first two box order for just $9, which is regularly $18. And they're basically all 100% cotton tampons. They're great. You don't have to worry about weird chemicals. Um, They work great. I should know. I have tried them out myself. So Lola's mission is they care about the ingredients in the food we eat, the beauty products we use. Why shouldn't the same be true of our tampons? Lola was founded with a simple and seemingly obvious idea. Women shouldn't have to compromise when it comes to tampons. Since Lola was created by women for women, we create a product that we wanted to use ourselves. They are 100% natural and 100% easy to feel good about. So I thought today's episode would be perfect for Lola to sponsor. Um, So again, if you want to get your uh, 50% off, so you get your first two box order for just $9, which is regularly $18. Uh, just click on the Lola icon at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com under the resources tab. All right. And without further ado, everyone, please enjoy today's sex part three with Jason Falvey, Sarah Haig, and Sandy Hilton. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our sex talk part three. And I'm joined by Doctors Sandy Hilton, Sarah Haig, and Jason Falvey. So I will have them introduce themselves because they will probably do a much better job at it than I can. So Sarah, why don't we start with you? Give tell the listeners a little bit about you, just in case they're not familiar. Okay. Well, my name is Sarah Haig, and I am one. I am one half of Entropy Physiotherapy and Wellness in Chicago, Illinois. And I'm happy to say that what we do is specialize in the things that no one else wants to talk about. So one of the really, um, probably the most rewarding part of my job is helping people who are having issues having intimacy and sex of whatever sorts. Uh, So it's really fun to to do that on a clinical level. I'm Jason Falvey. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Colorado and a geriatric clinical specialist who's very interested in geriatric care across the spectrum of health. Um, I am fascinated by what Sandy, Sarah, and Karen all do, and I'm just glad to be here to lend some small research insight into the awesome clinical work that they all do. Very lovely. I'm Sandy Hilton. I'm the other half of Entropy Physiotherapy, and having listened to Peter O'Sullivan in his two-day pre-conference here at CSM, really interested in putting a little more into what Sarah and I have built our practice on of helping people do what they love and not telling them they can't and um, taking that into what that means in normal human sexuality across the gender spectrum and where we can go with that. Yeah, I will have to say that if you have not listened to part one or part two, definitely go back through the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast and find part one and part two because there's a lot of Uh, really good information from those two podcasts. And we actually decided to do this almost a year ago to the day. So we were at, so right now we're all sitting in a hotel room in San Antonio, Texas during combined sections meetings. And Sarah, Sandy and I first thought about doing this in combined sections meeting last year. Um, At Disneyland. At Disneyland. We were waiting (laughs) in line for a ride at Disneyland I'm sure annoying the people around us, or at least making the people around us, yeah, think, why are these girls talking about sex so much? And so then I said, we should really make this into a podcast. This will be a lot of fun. The lady behind us in line was very intrigued. As she should be. As she should be. All right, so we have covered a lot in the last two podcasts. So we talked about DOMS of the pelvic floor, or delayed onset muscle soreness of the pelvic floor. We talked about sex in nursing homes. We talked about sex after surgery. And so today we're going to kind of take more maybe a 30,000 foot view and (laughs) the mile high view of sex. I did not know (laughs) guys like, okay, so this will be the mile high club club. (laughs) of sex. I just wanted to do that. Okay. 
So the first question is, and, and this is something that I think a lot of people have questions about, and that is, what's normal? So what's the normal anatomy? What sh what's normal? What should you feel when you have sex? Should you have pain with sex? So ladies, I'll have you take it away. Well, and Jason, if you want to chime in, you certainly can, <laughs> but. I mean, I'm from the Mile High City, but I don't have much to add to the Mile High Club discussion. When it comes to normal, especially if we're talking, we'll start with anatomy, normal anatomy, huge range. Um, and I think that Unfortunately, there's a lot of people who get an idea in their head as to what they're supposed to look like when really they're looking perfectly normal. So I, that's a really interesting thing, and I've been asked that more in the clinic than I than, than I ever thought I would would have to hear. Are especially females very concerned about if they're normal and how do they look? Um, great news. I've only seen one person who actually needed to have some assistance with what I saw. Everyone else has looked just normal. Um, so, so if everyone looks normal, then why do people have all those questions about if they look normal? Is that like a body image type of a situation? Or why do you think that people are not feeling normal? I, I think that one, you can, you can Google and see things um, that I couldn't see when I was a kid. So basically when I was growing up, the only ones you saw were your own. Um, and now you can see online various types of pornography that that indicate a certain aesthetic mm -hmm. and and it's it's unreasonable and certainly um, sometimes it starts with a woman seeing that and thinking that's what they're supposed to look like but then sometimes it's a partner only being exposed to that and then expecting that out of their partners so I'd say it's not generally a healthy thing I think that it just like everything else on your body it's pretty awesome to go you know what this is me take it or leave it so there are some unrealistic expectations on both sides? I, I would say po possibly. That, that definitely there's, there's external influences from both parties. And just depending on, because um, I've, I've said this several times before, is that if, if someone had a whole bunch to comment on, on how I looked in any way, I would be like, awesome, carry on then, because this isn't going to work out because this is all you get where there are other women who have gone so far as to have labiaplasty mm -hmm. to try to make their lady bits look like they're, so, air quotes, supposed to look. And that's a lot, um, a lot of that, that assumption of what it should look like and the supposed to look likes are based on airbrushed. Um, you know, you see the things in, in models in the... On YouTube, and you can look at how the photoshopping is done to make someone's arms look longer and their face look different. That's done um, to genitals. To genitals as well. So, so people who already have this innate thought that they're somehow not good enough um, are comparing themselves to something that is not actually real. And and the people who might be looking at the not actually real and then and then using that as the litmus test for the real person in front of them are wrong in so many different levels. So there's a lot of different ways that that goes sideways. Um, but the normal human variability Beautiful. is as variable as noses, um, which also have rhinoplasty done to them. That's true. <laughs> People think that they or should snowflakes. look different. Or right? beautiful snowflakes. Um, right, and there's, there really isn't one. So then that's external. <clears throat> Yeah. When I've uh, we were talking about what what have you heard since the last podcast when mm -hmm. last we met around the microphone, um, the a uh, uh, lot of discussions in the clinic about what's normal on the inside, so vaginal vault uh, length and width, and some women asking me how would they know if they switch partners if if they got to the point where sex was okay with their partner but they wanted to switch partners how would they know that that next partner would be okay. Um, so we've gotten into some really interesting physics discussions about length and width of vaginal vaults, and there isn't a no normal. There's no normal. One, no one's done that study. Well, but Also, two, two, they're really stretchy. <laughs> Babies come out of there. Right? Like, oh, yeah, that's super true. stretchy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Baby's head has to come out of there, so other stuff will fit. Other stuff will fit. <laughs> there, we're done. But, but, but it's not a pocket. 
Wait, that's I a sandyism. It's not a pocket. I love that Jason is just like, I can't even. Like, he's already like, the head is shaking, the glasses are up. He just does flushed. not know what to do. A little flushed. No, I think it's a fantastic topic to talk about, you know, anatomic variability, because we all learn about it in PT school and a lot of other variations in the brachial plexus and all, you know, elbow joints and different muscles around different joints. And so it's really interesting to talk about variability in other places as well. Well, well, and I'll just throw out there something beautiful. I'm going to quote um, the very clever Peter O'Sullivan on this one is that um, he said this weekend or this week, it's the middle of the week, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, is that we, we treat normal morphology like pathology. Right. And, and I would say that's actually not so different on this topic is that, you know, there's just this beautiful range of normal and we're like, crap, what's wrong? And there's, there's nothing wrong. But it's it's just that that worry and that misunderstanding and that comparing it to something that's just different. Well, how can are there studies on this? Like, how do you study what's normal and what's not normal? <laughs> um, it would be like Sarah said, it's stretchy. It would be really. Um, I don't know of anyone who has done a study on what the average length and uh, stretchiness. Uh, vaginally is um, well, well looking out on if we go back to like appearance because again on the inside it's really stretchy and most things on the inside seem to stretch enough and it it's not the vaginal vault I don't feel like is usually the thing that isn't stretching enough it's like the more the doorway mm. so like perhaps the hymen but also pelvic floor also skin mm-hmm. stuff like that but what's a normal face are we supposed to answer that question? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm asking because I want to know. I'm I really, mean, well, you know, really we, we just had like this talk at the meet and greet about how tiny my head is and how it's like <laughs> a big lion's head. Mine is so big. If we, if I was going to compare myself to Karen, I'd be so weird. <laughs> I know. Sarah's like, I can fit two of your heads in my head. And I said, That's well, true. when I was in high school and college, people used to come up to behind me and be like, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. <laughs> like this shrunken head at the end of Beetlejuice. But your head has a small head. It's true. Your head's beautiful and proportionate to your body and mine's bigger than it probably needs to be, but it works. So, so if there's variability in our heads, there's variability, variability in our genitals. Genitals. Very much so. I was going to say JJ's, but genitals You're gonna, You can't see the vagina. You're going to walk around looking at people's heads what? in a completely different way. You can't see way. the vagina. Okay. If you can see the <laughs> vagina, you should worry about a prolapse because what you're seeing is actually the vulva. The vulva. The vulva. Well, wait, let's talk about the anatomy then. Let's just <laughs> talk about that for a quick second. That might be good for me to review a lot as well. <laughs> so, okay, so I'll take notes. <laughs> so let's talk about this because when people say like the vajayjay, because yeah. Oprah says it. Oprah says it. You know, so if Oprah says it, it's true. It's a thing. It's yeah. a thing. So let's talk about what is the vajayjay then. Do you, well, I'm. Do you want to take this one? Oh, no, you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, so I, I'm guessing when they say vajayjay, they mean vagina. And, well, yeah, yeah. And so, so I would say that this is the way I explain it to people, is the vagina is like the hallway on the inside leading up to the cervix. On the other side of that mm-hmm. door is the uterus. On the outside, the pieces that everyone can see is usually referred to as the vulva. So that includes the labia majora, labia minora. Um, the clitoris, you can see the urethral opening, the perineal body is right there just south. Um, so those are the pieces you're actually seeing. So when people are like, I can't wait to see the vagina, it's, you, you can't unless you have a speculum and a headlamp. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Fair enough. So the lady bits are not the bits that people think they're seeing. If you're calling it the vajayjay or the vagina, right. you're not seeing that. You can okay. feel it for sure, but you can't see can't it. Can't see it. Really. And right. if it's, if, if you can't. I like, I like a hallway analogy too. Um, and and everything else is the beautiful filigree on the outside. Yes. Um, a beautiful collapsible, expandable hallway. <laughs> exactly. Uh, like Hermione's purse in Harry Potter. <laughs> Just but about it's anything. Not a there. <laughs> but it's not a pocket. It's not a pocket. She had a tent in there. Oh my God. We, we should talk about <laughs> like that. That should not be the right analogy. She literally had a tent in there. <laughs> We're going to talk about things you should a big put tent. in your vagina later. Oh, we can do that uh, now. This is a, this yeah. is a oh, beautiful segue. What? Okay, okay, yeah, let's talk about... The crystals. And the jade eggs. Mm-hmm. The jade eggs. The other sea sponges. Mm-hmm. 
Well, no. Okay, let's talk about what should go up there and what shouldn't. Okay. Fingers and penises? A tampons are okay. Tampons are okay. Tampons. Um, Speculums. Speculums are, and pro- proper sex toys. So they things that are made out. of non-porous material. Like but, what? Um, actually, as of late, I'm a, kind of a huge fan of glass. But then there's also very high quality silicone. Um, I'm not actually sure what else I would it, suggest. It, it needs to be something that, that isn't going to be able to collect bacteria. So it needs to be non-porous. Okay. Um, no vegetables, no rocks, minerals. Vegetables. Yeah. Yeah. What about coconut oil or coconut? Coconut oil is fine. Coconuts, no. <laughs> not, not coconut shit. This is a- Who's putting a coconut? Listen, if you can put a coconut up there, more power to you. But coconut oil or coconut. Coconut oil is great because it's. Oil. Um, coconut oil is this magic substance that you can use for your hair, your skin. Well, apparently it's the best of the popcorn. best. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, it's solid mm-hmm. at room temperature. When it heats mm-hmm. up, it turns into liquid. But like just um, barely over room temperature, right? And kind of so, it, and it's it, there's not much else to it, but coconut oil. So it's oil. safe. It's very safe. Okay. Um, I mean, seriously, you can you can. It's eat messy it. though. I mean, there's always pros and cons. That mm-hmm. might be the very crassest way to say this. Anything you can it's eat melty is probably and all better. Over the place. Oh. It does. It it it's very thin. Okay. So I wonder about this this. Um, fascination with putting things up there you know I, I think if you if you think about it like remember the first Fifty Shades of Grey book like this Never was read a, it. actually I have not read okay, it well, I've read it carry on so <laughs> wow I feel a little uncomfortable now but so I listened to it on audiobook which is another story for another day don't listen to it on audiobook working in home health and accidentally leave it on in the gas station while small children are walking by <laughs> that can be awkward and uncomfortable for everybody Perfect. No. <laughs> but I wanted to I wanted to hear what the public fascination was with with the story of Fifty Shades of Grey. And, okay. And so, so, <laughs> so, so Christian asked Anastasia to use certain <laughs> objects that she held in her vagina, and I'd never heard of anything like this before, and I did some interesting research on it, which is an awkward Google search, another story for another day. But I was curious, like, this is a real thing, and clearly it is, and I think a lot of the public had the, some of the same reaction that I may have had, and that might have started to increased interest in some of these alternative sexual <clears throat> like what activities. yeah i didn't read the books i, got, I didn't read the book honestly a, a patient said you have to read this and i got mm-hmm. to page i think four and said the literacy the writing and the writing style there. of this is abysmal and i cannot yeah. go any Great. further now people are going to think we're bashing 50 shades of gray I that's am. okay i'm bashing so, 50 so shades what, of gray what what sort of things are you talking about? So they were two, and the description was they were two glass balls that she was asked oh, to hold. Yeah, yeah, she was asked to hold inside of her vagina, and you know clearly she had some some discomfort with uh, with trying this, and then she wore them out in public to appease him. But I never really understood what the physiological purpose would be for male or female and so I did some research and clearly I don't remember any of it but I remember vividly that this was like the first time I had actually heard about something like this Um, and now I'm deferring to the experts to tell me so what's the point of doing that? I like that everyone looked at me just now. Um, Sarah, so, Sandy, what's the so, point? I, I, so I think there's two levels there. Like anything sexual is that there, there's a psychological thing and then there's like the actual physical part of it. And then like there's that like Venn diagram of where those overlap and like how it makes you feel. Um, so the, the, the whole control stuff, that'll be part four of this podcast, I think. We can, we can get into that there. Um, as far as put, putting things in... In your vagina, um, there. How can I say this? So, like Benoit balls, which is what they're talking about there. Nothing against that. Um, if you like how it feels, and then if they're properly cared for, um, which it, means clean them. Which means clean them with and what? Um, that, that can be just soap and water. Soap and water. Yeah, okay. that's fine. Um, if you have silicone, depending on the, if you have other materials, there's different ways you should clean them. But, like, if it's glass, yeah, just wash it up. It's fine. Air dry. Air dry? Yeah. But, but the, um, like, you always have to wonder. It's very PT-oriented. What, what, what's your goal here? <laughs> so, um, you can use them for, like, vaginal weights. So, some people will use things in their vagina or their anus as kind of a weight against gravity. 
However, this only works when you're upright. So for the article where Gwyneth was talking about jade eggs and just lie down and see what happens, if you lie down, if you shove anything into your vagina far enough, it's gonna stay there. If you lie down, it's gonna stay there. Well, wait, wait, so if you have these jade eggs and you put them up your vagina, how do you get them out? Are they, do you have it's a string to them or something? Uh, yeah, there's usually yeah. a string of some sort okay. or, I mean, your vagina is only so big. The That's the so other thing what, that once, what's going on. once you do a little bit of public flow, you realize there's only so much room in there. So it is truly a hallway then. It, it's, but, but there's a, it's a, there's a, there's only so much space so you can find it. It's fine. Um, but, but again, if the goal is to get a stronger pelvic floor, you need to be upright. If you're just like, wow, that gives me some crazy input feelings down there and you like it, score. Um, if you're like, wow, this feels really, really horrible. Why would you do something that feels horrible? Don't. Right. Well, and that, yeah, that goes into the like, what's good, what's not good. And, and it, it, it's supposed to feel good. So if it doesn't feel good, then don't do it. But if it doesn't feel good, don't do it. And um, it doesn't, some things, the more you do them, you can accommodate and it'd be okay. Kind of like my running program. I don't really like it at first. <laughs> you just made that sound so sexy. I can make running amazingly sexy. It's the only way I run. Oh, no, I mean like, a, um, like but, tolerating but vaginal you, things. Right? If you, but if you do it long enough, you can accommodate to it. And if that's your goal to accommodate to it, then there's a great exposure mm-hmm. to it. Um, but if someone, and this is where intimacy gets, gets a little more complicated, is that if someone else is telling you you need to like something that you don't like... Uh, well, no one likes yeah. to be told you should or you shouldn't, or you should and you have to. Let's put it that way. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I think that there's probably so. This is my disclosure: is I am not a relationship or anything expert. Yeah, none of us. But yeah. none of us are. <laughs> none um, of us are. But but you know, it's one of those things where there's there's things you know you're comfortable with, and that's cool. And then there's things that you might be curious about but haven't had the chance to try, and that's another thing. There's other things you never thought you might want to, but in the right setting, you'd be like, huh. That doesn't sound so bad. And then there's other things where you're like, hell no. And and just finding your comfort level. And your boundaries. And your boundaries. Your boundaries are. And, and that's the important part. And this is where I'll disagree because even as physical therapists, that um, we're not counselors. But, Absolutely. But what, right. what I know about how the pelvic floor works and the reflexive protectiveness of the pelvic musculature against threat, if you're trying to be intimate but what you think is intimacy feels threatening to you, there's a part of you that's going to be like, I should do this, and another part of you that's saying, um, no, and contracting the pelvic floor muscles against that. So you're essentially fighting yourself. Um, so there's, there is some bit that you have to say, do you want to do this? I don't think we're disagreeing. I think on my scale was, wow, I'd love to do that. Wow, I'd love to do that, but haven't tried it yet. No, I was just with Karen saying that. that Oh, I was like, wait, no. You, I agree with Karen. Oh, okay. I was confused. I'm like, no, no, you should never do anything you don't want to do. That we aren't counselors. I agree with that. But this is very much what we need to do in pelvic health is get into that. Do you want to be doing this? How do you feel about this? Right. And that actually gets into so let's say someone has pain with sex. How do you approach that patient? And when do you say, I think you need to see a counselor. How about that? That's so let, all right, so let's go. Someone has pain, so someone has pain with sex. Let's say, how, what is the point at which you say, I would like you to see a counselor about this? Let's start with that. Um, I start all of my evaluations with some sort of screening form for... Um, like what? Well, to, I've been using the pain catastrophizing scale, but I was told today that I need to use the Arebro. Um, yeah, so, that's a cool one. Um, that's a cool one. But, but I, I use um, a couple different screening forms on my evaluations to find out uh, if kind of how people are going with what they're feeling about what they're feeling. Um, if it seems to be really challenging for them, combined with them very sensitive to any touch or the idea of using the parts of their body that would be involved in this and they haven't talked to anyone and don't have anything in place, then I would ask them how they feel about that. Um, because I'm not a counselor. I know where my edges are and I know how, in by that I mean that I know where I'm comfortable taking a conversation, um, how far I am going into thoughts and beliefs and expectations 
uh, about movement and use. And there's a point where where I that's not my field, and I will work with sexual counselors or psychologists to to add that extra component to it and some other support. I really love it when we find people that we can work with, so we're all speaking the same language. I think that works best. How do you find those people? Oh, it's like every time you move, you got to build a new network. A new network. Um, being in Chicago now for going on five years, I've got three or four that I really trust. I would like ten, but um, because as soon as you find someone that's like, this is a great person, you'll refer someone and they won't like their tone of voice or the way they look or the way their office smells. or There's all sorts of cues that make us comfortable. It's nice to have a variety. So, all right, so you have someone that you feel like they're having some catastrophization or or some fear with, let's say, movement or sex, but you think, I can work with this patient. I don't need to refer them out. They aren't at that point yet. So how do you then proceed with that patient? You want me to take that one? Sure. Um, the, way, the way I usually, this is Sarah, because a lot of times people confuse us, um, is, is really you, you just listen to them. Really. You ask them what their, um, what their goals are, what they're hoping to do, what they're worried about, and all of that. And then you kind of, um, I don't know that I'm answering the question very well. Go from there. But yeah, but you basically go from there. So um, a lot of times I feel like the, my, my patients will tell me when they need more help from the outside. And so if you, any, any physical therapist or trainer or sports um, coach, my athletic trainer friends are going to get mad at me for that. Um, the, you start where someone is and mm-hmm. look at what their goal is. Mm-hmm. And you break down the path to get from where they are to where they want to go. And you design a training program to get there. It's not any different in if, with someone that has pain with intimacy and wants to be intimate again. Um, you have your, your right and left mm-hmm. limits. So you design a program to get there, and I call that graded exposure. And um, you, you just set up a program where you gradually increase the demand on those tissues and confound the expectation that they won't be okay with it. And you continue to challenge them so that they continue to progress till they're doing their goal. And it's a little harder with sex and intimacy because one of the the standard ways of doing graded exposure would be, say, if sitting was painful for you, you could sit for, and you knew you could sit for two minutes without hurting, you would start there and sit for two minutes, and then you'd increase it by 30 seconds each time. That's a little harder to do with intimacy with a partner because it makes for a great joke. It's like, so honey, it's two minutes tonight, and tomorrow we're going to do two and a half minutes. Um, it doesn't always yeah. work like that. No, it's it's really hard because there's a person. I always say there's a person attached to the penis mm-hmm. um, <laughs> that you have to you have to manage those interactions. Most of the time. Well, except there's this great product called Clona Willy. So then you can get an exact replica of the partner you're aiming for. What? And work. Yeah, Clona Willy. I think it's thirty five dollars on Amazon. I get no endorsement money from that at all. Um, but it really is, it's one of those things where how do you do that? Because the other thing that we have to take into account isn't just like, honey, two two minutes tonight, two and a half tomorrow, is the like, oh my God, I feel so bad. I have to ask this of him. I'm so sad, mm-hmm. like all of this. So to to kind of remove the, the, the I guess the intimate part of being intimate mm-hmm. um, can make you go, wait, the tissues are cool. Now what can I do? So let's back up a second to this clone of Willie. <laughs> yeah, we can. Yes, we can. How does this work? Um, uh, you you order you order the, the, the. Do you know how this works? Not one fucking clue. Okay. <laughs> so so I've had a patient use it. It worked well. She had a baby. From a cl- no, um, there's, there's some no. steps missing in that story to the audience. Yada she, yada yada, she had a baby. <laughs> Don't it's like Clona yada Willie. yada yada. I had the bisque. <laughs> I mentioned the bisque. <laughs> you cut out the best part. <laughs> so so for those people who have ever um, gotten measured for orthotics for their feet, uh-huh. and you there's that. Uh, framed in place, filled in with material. You put your foot in it, it makes an impression. 
Uh-huh. So if you imagine a kind of a clamshell version of that, the gentlemen it's would get tube. themselves... It's a, it's a tube. It's a tube. You, they get themselves fluffed up, uh, inserted into the mold material. What do you think about this? I'm going to show you Fascinated. Send it yeah. off, and into your mailbox is a replica of said uh, that person. No, person. No, no, no. You make it yourself. Oh. It, that's not terribly... That's not oh, really so correct. it's changed. Okay. So actually, so Clone of Willie, if I put in clone in my phone, Clone of Willie is the first thing that pops. <laughs> I was looking uh, at... What does that mean? I was looking this up. I've looked it up before. I was looking this up before. So it's changed over time. That's cool. Um, okay. So so basically, you're cloning the person that you're with hey, so that copy you're... Their, a three-dimensional... Mm, firm-ish. So, so you get copy. a little vibrating bit that would go in the middle... You have some some stuff, and then you have a tube. Mm-hmm. Huh? Yep. So you make a you make a mold of the penis, and there you go. There you have it. So I get three stars. <laughs> <laughs> the, what we you, did you, you can't, anyway. You know what? You need to have good subject matter. I'm just gonna say it. <laughs> what what um, what we did before clone a Willie and Amazon were a thing. For those of you who who can remember, um, would be have the gentlemen fluff themselves up and use uh-huh. a tape measure, measure length and dimension, sure. and yes. then go to the local sex shop and get something just Close. slightly larger. Ah. Because if you can tolerate the just slightly larger, then you sense. know that your partner will You're be ready. just fine. Mm-hmm. Um, there are dilator sets that are made that come in a variety of shapes and sizes and colors, colors um, and materials. And it's good to have a variety because what one person will think, oh, I can use this and work with it, another person would be um, affronted by, which would increase the tone in their pelvic yeah. floor and make it less likely for it to be successful. So we have a variety of options at the clinic and just let people choose their own, much like Thank art. You. What do you like? Yeah, and it, and it really does go along with kind of that, um, like motivational interviewing and having like a patient choose their own their own path. It's um, a choose your own adventure book. It is a choose your own adventure book. Those are my favorite. Um, but you know, there are some people who are like, I need this to look like a penis, and then we have other people who are like, this needs to look the most like not penis like ever. And <laughs> as Sandy points to the microphone. Um, but yeah, it really it's really important to have something that the person doesn't feel the need to protect against. Something that is, even though it's turning something intimate into something clinical for a short time, that that doesn't offend them or raise the uh, the red flag. And this is where we go back to the this is where we go back to the earlier conversation about what is normal length and size inside, because some people will. Um, will be concerned at the visual and think this can't possibly fit. It's not the dimension, it's the length that they're concerned about. So the, I think that part of the problem with women who want to have intimate relationships with men is that we are abysmal in our sex ed mm-hmm. and knowing how intimacy works in the first place. Intimacy um, or sex? Both. Okay. Because they're, they're not necessarily What's the, difference? the same thing. Um, sex is a penis and a vagina, or other orifice, I suppose. Intimacy is usually another level of emotional involvement. I feel like, like if you're just going to talk about sex, you could, you could tease that down to like the very mechanical bit. Yeah, smirky. <laughs> um, so you can't tease that down to the smaller bit, but then the intimacy can get a li- bit more convoluted, I think. Okay. So, I mean, I think people use the terms interchangeably, but, like, as my health teacher said, who also happened to coach baseball um, <laughs> in high school, uh, this is just the nuts and bolts, you know, Fair just enough. An anatomy Fair and... And now, so, you know, we're, t- we're as physical therapists, very much an evidence-based, so I think we try to be try a to very be. much evidence-based profession. So, as the researcher in the group... How how do you research this? I mean, this is not an easy thing to research. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah. I feel like it's not. No, I think you're right. I mean, I think one of the, like, if you're talking about clinical trials, like, one of the ideas is to standardize an intervention across different groups of patients and test the outcomes. And you hope that 
when you randomize people into groups that you balance out the differences. It's very hard to randomize people into sex groups, right? I think that becomes very difficult because of all the variability that we've talked about. Oh, no, no, it wasn't a question. Uh, oh, Sarah was volunteering for the sex study, so... I want to know what you mean when you say sex groups. Mm -hmm. So let's say you wanted to test the effectiveness of certain interventions, and you have one that you think is going to work really well, and you have one that's kind of like the normal care, right? Are, do, you, do people want to join a study where they are potentially going to be in a... You know, maybe a delayed placebo sex. A placebo <laughs> sex group, right? It's very hard to make placebo groups. How do you make a placebo group? How, how do you make two equivalent groups? We don't know enough about what normal sex care is to know how to yes. standardize that care to make a intervention be able to be studied against it. So there's there's tremendous variability in the people that you'd be studying if you're studying sexual satisfaction in women. The variability that you have in their partners as far as length, width, etc. You can't randomize their partner that they're sleeping with in most ethical research studies, so that might also be say, that of concern. That sounds like a Friday night at most bars. Uh -huh. Randomized allocation. So there's, there's, there's ethical and research design concerns Just abound. And, and, and practical. So the, the kind of research that you do is, you know, in lack of a better word, messy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a messy research design. <laughs> but I, I think I'll defer. So, but, but I'll go back to my... So what, how, if you were going to study sex, are you studying gender or sex or the, mm -hmm. the verb or the noun? I was just going to say... Yeah. I think that how you define your research question is ultimately going to determine how successful you are able to design the study or if you're able to design it at all. Right? I think it's hard to design the groups and, and the interventions for a study, it's also hard to measure success in these kinds of studies. What's your what's your outcome <laughs> measure going to be, right? I mean, sex and intimacy are different things, right? There's a physiological quote unquote success to sex. Is there a physiological success to intimacy? I, I you know, I would say that that's probably up for debate and what how do you measure those things? So it becomes very difficult to make a study where you can ahead of time say, I think this is what's going to happen. I think this is the magnitude of the effect I'm going to see. So is, is that the wrong question? Or or would it be better to just be looking at variability? I, what are we even measuring here? Frequency, act, duration, pleasure. through those, life, I know a pleasure. lot of researchers that would say those are a lot of questions. <laughs> That's exactly. a lot of studies. Right, so can we ever answer what's normal? Yeah, and can you tease out, you know, a, you know, the different outcomes from each other, right? An intimacy outcome versus a sexual satisfaction outcome versus a duration of sexual experience outcome versus a, you know, um, yeah, a pain outcome. Like, how do you how do you tease all those things out? And that's not even taking <laughs> into consideration any social differences or cultural differences. Mm -hmm. So. So studying sex is really, really hard, yeah. but I, I, say, I, yeah. I think what we can agree on is that one thing is that, one, you should always have consent. Yes. Two, is that really sex, sex should never be painful. <clears throat> and when I say that, it's really interesting because I think we've talked about this maybe before on the other ones is that um, when pain comes up, you're like, but what if you like it? And the, the answer is, is that if you like it, what's the definition of pain, Sandy? Oh, goodness. Um, it is a unpleasant. unpleasant emotional or physical response or... Uh, to perceived or actual tissue right, damage. damage. So, so if you're experiencing that, if it's well done, Thanks, good team, team. effort. <laughs> but it, so if, if you're liking it, then by definition, it isn't pain. So um, this weekend, Bronnie Thompson brought up, or last week at the San Diego Pain Summit, brought up... Um, People who like hang themselves with flesh hooks, which right. just the word flesh hooks makes me kind of want to a little bit, um, but they don't feel pain. So that's something kind of weird um, in my brain, but it's totally normal for others and they like it. So when you come back to sex, you know, so what's, what's normal, what's not, really I feel very strong, even though I could not cite a single study, is that pain should not hurt, and, or sex should not hurt. Pain hurts by definition, sorry. Um, but if sex is hurting, that's something that needs to be investigated yeah. and addressed and not 
just endured. And it can change. It can absolutely change. Mm -hmm. um, but again, as you start to sort that out, it could be a physical tissue issue, but then it could also be more complicated where we phone a friend, where we have fabulous, right. fabulous sex counselors and relationship experts and... Right, because like I think if, if there's anything that I took away from Peter O'Sullivan's talk in the past two days is that it's not always in the tissues, it's not always a physical issue, but that there are a multitude of other factors that are involved in a pain experience. And that could be past experiences, that can be uh, fear around a certain activity, everything, everything <laughs> moving everything you name it and and actually there's a question that came up on social media and and that was what about sex if you have low back pain oh, so i don't know if that's coming from the female or the male but since we've got a we've got a couple of women and a man here oh, doesn't even we, can matter. Talk, we could talk a little bit about that but i think when people have low back pain or, or let's just say pain in general, which we saw over the weekend in, or over the, why do I keep saying it's weekend? Good. Because it's You want to know why? Because Diego normally PT things are on the weekend. Yeah. And it just so happens this was a Tuesday and a Wednesday. At any rate, um, when you think about pain, I mean, I had neck pain for many years. The last thing I wanted to do, first of all, the last thing I felt was sexy. And so when you have pain, you don't feel sexy. You don't feel like people even want to have sex with you. So that's just kind of not even an option. And then you have all this fear around sex that it's going to really hurt or that it's going to exacerbate your pain. And so what do you say to those people who, yeah, they're having, let's say they have low back pain or neck pain or any kind of pain. Well, then what do they do? Because it is a scary thing. It is. I'm sure my parents are going to love this one. Uh, your I parents like often listen to your podcast. My parents never listen to my podcast. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, well, I, I would honestly start with, like, when else are they having pain? Because if it's, if it's a matter of sifting out, is this uh, a sex problem or a pain problem? And kind of getting there is if they're having sex or having sex when they're sitting, <laughs> that's okay too. But more if they are um, having pain when they're sitting, when they're walking, what are the other characteristics of this pain? Let's, let's look at that and see if we can start to change it because diving right into something that also involves another person, intimacy, or more people, um, it, it can be really tricky. But if it really is, um, I think the specific question I got from, from a text was best positions for low back pain. And honestly, mm -hmm. the fabulous, or for having sex when you have low back pain, the fabulous thing with that is like, it depends. I need to know what makes it feel better, what makes it feel worse. And then let's try to make you be able to have sex in whatever position you want to have. But also, there are sometimes positions that you can work out that will not hurt your back immediately so that you can continue to have sex. It's not like, well, bugger your back, just so go have sex. It's more <laughs> it's more like, well, hey, have you have you tried it this way? Can you try it this way? So it's a trial and error kind of a situation? Um yes, but you can but what you can do is you can do a little bit of trial and error. So if it's not the actual penetration in the case of a male female partner that's hurting um, you can, I mean, we have yoga bolsters. Sandy has given me more than one weird look when I try to help people work out positions they can be in. The, it's, it's no different really than any other movement that you're trying to do is find the variability that feels good for you. It's funny to say seek pleasure with pleasure, but seek pleasure with pleasure. So you find the position that feels best and do that and then do it again. Um, and then you... Try other things and find the ones well, that feel best. What if Sandy you have like a big, a, a bit of a paralyzing fear around it? That that's another thing. If, so, and you do that the same way you would with anything else. Um, you know, are you are you afraid to sit? Are you afraid to bend over? We would find ways to confront you with your strengths. It just gets interesting when you talk about that uh, around intimacy and sex. Because the conversations, you just, I just have to laugh with them. Because what we're talking about doing is turning sex into something that's pure physics. 
and I'll tell my patients I can I can make sex so, so not sexy. And we apologize, <laughs> but we promise us for a good cause. Um, but it's just for a moment, and then you can add all of that arousal and intimacy back into it. But in the beginning, you're you're clearing the movements and saying I can be in this position and do this movement, and it's okay. And then you have to add a whole other person to that. So that's sort of like doing team gymnastics or dancing dancing. dancing by yourself here are Um, the movements right and and then you add that extra physics and movement and and lack of control and and not quite able to match the expectations and all of those things that happen uh but you you start i start with a structural resilience is you can handle this in all these different variations Mm. Um, and then we'll add the complexities. They go do all that homework on their own. We don't do that at the clinic. That's good. And you probably have to charge a lot more for that. So Yeah, also uh, lose our license. It's not in my license. <laughs> there are, but there are, really, truly, there are therapists that help with that. That's mm-hmm. not physical therapists. They're mm-hmm. sex therapists, and they work with couples with mm-hmm. trying to sort out the what goes where and how to make that happen. Mm-hmm. I just make it not scary. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. I I think all of these factors make, you know, any kind of research evidence base for what pelvic health physical therapists do incredibly difficult, right? So much of the evidence is observational. Um, You know, that's a pun. That's the actual research definition. (laughs) It is is technically observational (laughs) research, but you're not actually watching them do the acts. Yes, but. Please do not send me videos. (laughs) Yeah, that won't help diagnose. Well, it might help diagnose, but we don't want to see those. So. Um, (laughs) No, I think it adds so much complexity, right? Because you guys are almost flying blind with what the best research is to help guide these things. You're going by your clinical practice, which is fantastic, but how do you counsel therapists who might not have your vast expertise at observational movement analysis and um, being able to kind of work through some of these issues? Like how, how was a new therapist going to approach some of these issues? Do you want me to take it? Please do, because because there's some static in my head at the moment. I'm like, oh, well. yeah, no, I I think I think we have to, and this is this might be one of my soapboxes. This is Sarah's soapbox. Is that really this is just it's human movement and human function, and the fact that it happens to be sex makes people get really really funky. But if you one, I'd say that's a lovely time for self-reflection as to, like, why are you so freaked out about this as a, as a professional who helps people function and move better? But also, you can break it down. Um, you know, you can... <laughs> Everyone just did some dance moves. Oh, and, and a little recall to the cram sessions. Thanks, Karen. But really, it's, uh, you, you can break it down. Um, there, there, there's movies you can watch. There's movements you can do. All you need to do is to ask without judgment where the problem is. Mm -hmm. And then start to problem solve it, just like if you had a person who wanted to swing a golf club, someone who wanted to learn a tango. Like, really, all of it, it's it's just one more thing. The fact it ends up with people having sex is, is, I don't want to say irrelevant, but it's, there's a lot of stuff that you... Are perfectly capable of doing before you get to that intimacy part. Yeah, and we we in in the physical therapy world, and I think just humans in general make sex be a taboo topic that is somehow different. Like those mm-hmm. those tissues, the muscles, the the representation in your brain, your body ownership and confidence about it is somehow different there than anywhere else because of the social and um, psychological bits that get added into mm-hmm. that. And, and to be fair, the, the body should protect the reproductive area a lot because it's pretty important for the, the, uh, the species. Right? <laughs> also, I mean, you have to remember the pelvic floor is also part of the peeing and the pooping, which is also essential for homeostasis and, you know, survival. So, so those are all things that are very important going on down there. But it is still tissues, muscles, ligaments, connective nerves. tissue, nerves, representation in the brain. You train it just like you train anything else, and you load it to get it better. So if it's a problem, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. 
So this one more time. This interesting compartmentalization of activities of daily living and activities of nightly living are uh, <laughs> is interesting just, to me. Can we just make them activities of living? living. The activities of living, right? So we we've dichotomized these things as a physical therapy education profession. So I wonder what's the entry level education for these kinds of topics, right? Like I think you got student physical therapists listening to this podcast. What's their exposure to any introduction level of how to talk about sex with patients or how to approach some of these conversations? It's a good, nice question. It's a great question. It's a beautiful question. I would challenge with when they're out on a date, how do they approach the topic of sex with anyone? Not that we do that in the clinic, but that are you as a human able to talk about sex? If you as a human are very uncomfortable with that topic, then you as a therapist trying to talk to someone that has a problem with that are probably going to have a problem with it. Mm -hmm. So you need to be comfortable with the topic um, because your patients are going to be judging you and wondering how safe they are with you while you're trying to figure out what's up with them. So you need to be okay with it. That's a lot of cultural stuff. But we're all talking about humans trying to help other humans. Um, If you're really, really wrapped up around this is ooky, your patients are going to know. And you might not do as well with that. You should probably work with shoulders. Well, and but I think still when it comes to incontinence and ball issues and um, and sexual issues is, is I think as you know, speaking primarily as a physical therapist, is that any physical therapist should really be able to go like, whew, I hear what you're saying, and really, I'm really sorry you're going through that. That's not my area. I have I have a colleague that you can speak to about mm-hmm. that if yeah. you would like some help. I do that all the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. because it's, because like you said, if you're, a, if, if the practitioner is uncomfortable with it, the the, the patient is going to know, and that's not going to go well or be helpful. It's really about, um, you know, I don't want to say do your growing on your own time, but <laughs> but but as a, as a practitioner, do what you need to do to get comfortable with this, but in the meantime, don't not help people who need it. I was very, when I started in pelvic health, oh, it was so on accident. I was yeah. so not so cute. wanting to do this at all, ever. And How I, long ago was that? I don't know. I don't want to call you out or anything. A really long time, and some of you weren't even alive. Um, No. (laughs) Uh, um, I was doing my notes with stone tablets. (laughs) (laughs) I was doing it on tablet. (laughs) Right? It's no different. It's the same speed now. Um, I don't know. I lived in Oregon. When was that? Um, 90-something. Okay. Um, And... I was um, I had been neuro. I went into ortho because I moved again, and um, so I was working in orthopedics. And this, a doctor sent over a guy who had pain having sex, and he said that Doc Bailey said you'd tell me how to have sex without my back hurting. And I said I don't do that. And I went and talked to the doctor. It was mechanical low back pain, but I was so embarrassed by the concept and this young studly logger guy talking to me about sex that I didn't know how to help him because of my own embarrassment. Um, but I'm also incredibly stubborn and I really appreciated that doctor and I didn't want to look like an idiot in front of him. So the not wanting to look like an idiot outweighed the embarrassment of the topic and I got over that. There are some therapists that can't. They can't work with intimacy questions. And I think, as Sarah said, that what you should do is say, you know what, there's help for you, but I am not your person. Let me send you to someone who can do this. Because there's no reason for me as a therapist to be tortured by what I do at work. And there's really no reason to withhold care from someone because I'm not comfortable with the topic. I think Um, that's fair. What I did was just got comfortable with the topic. But... Um, but I recognize and I respect people that can say that's not my thing mm-hmm. and refer them to someone whose it is. But there is totally help. And that works for, and we are, I, I refer to it as across the gender spectrum because there is a gender spectrum. And there are people who will only work, there are women who will only work with women. There are men who will only work with men. Mm-hmm. There are people who won't work with transgender. There's what, just find someone who will help them because there's help. So you guys have both had students in the clinic, right? I've, I've met one of your students, and he is uh, he's very, very bright. <laughs> and you guys look like you taught him well. Now he's running his own private practice. You want to give him a shout-out? Ryan. Yeah. He's, he's so good. Ryan Smith. 
He made my website. Um, made the web. He made our website as well. Good. Good He's egg. a good egg. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's a nice we'll guy. So, so let's think about when he came into your clinic, like what was his exposure to <laughs> sexual, you know, sexual rehabilitation kind of techniques? I'm, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that it was not extensive <laughs> given the okay. response. We're talking from the just gals. about his exposure. I was going to say, no, right now he's blushing. Where, where is no Ryan? Why. Where is Ryan? He needs to be he's here. He's on a plane on his way here he's, and he's blushing and doesn't. I know. And, and Nate, Mentz, Mentz, I always get your name wrong, Nate. Mencius. Sorry, Mencius. Um, Nate was uh, also a student mm-hmm. at the clinic at the same time, and he was there. Ryan was there on a business kind of mm-hmm. studentship, and um, Nate studentship. Was, studentship. I think they call it like uh, an internship. Inventured that would be it. <laughs> the Ryan, uh, Nate was there as a um, one of his affiliations, mm-hmm. so he was treating. Okay. Ryan was working the business part. Okay. Um, uh, both of them got more exposure than I think they expected to get. Uh, both physically and verbally. And hey, can you make sure the dilators are put away before you leave? Um, who left the vibrators out? I think was was a comment once in the clinic. So uh, no, they got they got exposed to all sorts of conversations. And patients that were were okay. I ask every single time when a student is in the clinic. Every visit, are you okay with the student? Mm-hmm. Because uh, due to the sensitive nature of working with persistent pain in general, mm-hmm. and pelvic pain in particular, um, you need to be able to say no. Mm-hmm. So that's a condition for being a student at our clinic is that you need to understand that you could spend an entire day just chilling and reading because every single patient might say no. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. I'm going to let them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, but they had a lot, they had a lot of fun, I think, um, and and much exposure. Mm-hmm. That's good. And I was only commenting on their experience with sex as a student and not as a general person. So. Oh, I do not. We did not. Rushing. We did not get into that. I have no idea about their practical application <laughs> of the knowledge. Okay. We're all talk all about knowledge translation, but you didn't ask about that particular knowledge translation. So this has been an hour, which is awesome, and I love our sex talks. This is the third one. Um, But let's take – this is a question that I kind of have been asking all of my guests at the end of the podcast because, sorry, this is the end. Um, But this is going to be nice because I have three different guests here to ask this question to, all at kind of different phases of their careers. So the question is, is – um, what, what, what advice would you give to the new grad to yourself as a new graduate, knowing what you know now? So Can I go? go ahead. Uh, don't take anything that has more than one class in a series because level seven is not necessary and good teachers can teach you the principles in one class. That's nice. I've, I've said this before, just, just to question. And if you're. If it doesn't seem to make sense, you're probably right. You're not stupid. I spent a good part of my early career doing what I thought I was supposed to do and not getting very good results. Um, And it was really when I said, huh, I really don't know much of anything. Why don't I not follow the cookbook is is really when when things started to get a little better for me. So just looking for that, um, ah, be ready to critically think. Don't look for a cookbook. It just doesn't exist. I would say that when looking for mentorship, years of experience does not equal clinical expertise, mm-hmm. right? So and I think I, I feel very strongly about that. Like when you're looking for people to teach you things, look for people who have good relationships with patients and who have good outcomes, not people who have been in the clinic the longest. All right. Well, well I, and you. And oh. you. What? I never yeah. have to answer that question. <laughs> Until tonight. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Um, I would say what I would say to my new grad self is that you're a lot stronger than you think you are and that you have the ability to help your patients beyond what you think that you can do and that it's okay for you to address more than physical issues with your patients because even those issues of fear and those issues of doubt 
affect the way that you that the patient moves and that it's okay to address all of those and that you're not stepping over boundaries and that you can you can do all of that if you have the right knowledge and the right mentorship <laughs> and the confidence to do it so Very that's cool. what i would say nice Thank you. All right. So that is another uh, sex part three in the books. So any final thoughts? Are we good on what we said? Do we need to say anything else? Summary. Sex shouldn't hurt. Your bits are beautiful. No matter what anyone says. Do it again. This is part three. I'm going to need some Gatorade to do part four. (laughs) Oh, Gatorade it is. Gatorade, or maybe Pedialyte. It has we less got, sugar. We got some <laughs> All right. Well, I want to thank uh, doctors Sandy Hilton, Jason Falvey, and Sarah Haig for another great talk on sex. And um, everyone, follow all of us on Twitter. Just look it up. Um, <laughs> it's too hard. Just look it up. Just look up our names. You'll find us. We're not that hard. Um, thanks hey, for listening. Hey, wait a minute. Let's be easy there. <laughs> I, I guess I shouldn't have used that analogy. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, so, so I guess some of us are not that hard. Some of us are. Um, anyway, um, thank you so much for listening, everyone. Have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. <laughs> thank you for listening, and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.